football <laughs> season 50. Like, that's really where we're at. Like, the Super Bowl is the season finale of football. That is true. That is very like, true. fight me on this. I, I'm yeah. not fighting Somebody you come it. fight me. <laughs> I'm sure someone would be willing to come fight you. Let them. Because you know what? That's how it is. Every year, there's a new season of football. They call it the football season or the competitive season or whatever it's called. It's just a season. Like a, t- like a TV anything. Like season five of Lost. Uh, season six of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Season 54 of football. <laughs> like, I mean, I guess if you want to look at it that way, I mean, you know, you could buy a complete box set of all of the uh, football games at the Ugh, end of each season. Why, though? Hey man. Why though? Hey man, archive, archival footage. I feel like that's cheaper than buying like box sets of pretty much any other TV show. What what do you mean? Like cuz l- let me put it to you this way. If you were to like take every single NFL game from every like division, everything within the United States and condense it all into one like giant blu-ray pack it would have to be i I would i would venture to say at least 20 blu-ray discs because you got to remember like each game is probably about like yeah let's go without commercials about two hours and there's like you know 50 to 60 games in any given season holy shit yeah i guess i don't know i hope that never happens Ladies and gentlemen, live from coast to coast, we proudly present For Your Information with Zach and John. Of all the gin podcasts in the world, you had to listen to ours. Welcome to For Your Information, a podcast for good movies, better cocktails, and best friends. We're your hosts, Zach. And I'm John. Uh, I'm also 100% head over heels for this movie. Fucking Casablanca. Casablanca? Casablanca? Whatever the hell it is. It is so good, and it is maybe my new favorite movie. (laughs) Casablanca from 1942. Uh, This is the first time I've ever seen John get this excited about i don't know maybe anything (laughs) it is so good it 100 lives up to the hype and more so john uh let's get right into it then how have you not seen casablanca like what what led you to not seeing this movie i was aware of it um there's a bunch of black and white movies quote unquote we'll just call them all black and white movies that i've known about for a long time just i've never really gotten into because i've had so much other stuff on my plate Mm -hmm. you know like i had to watch uh the wizard of oz and i had to watch um i don't know dracula and then I had to move up and had to watch Die Hard and, like, Juno and, like, all these other movies I'd never seen. So this one kind of went to the back burner for the duration of this podcast. And before that, I wasn't really watching all too many movies in general. So I've known about it. I knew it existed. I didn't really know what it was about or why. So here we are. So here we are. But you're you're just head over heels for it now. Like, you, you love this movie. It is so good. Like, everything about it is so good. It 100% lives up to the hype. It it's definitely a class act of a film and it's um honestly like we were talking about genres last week uh i think this fits into the film noir um like archetype but it's not necessarily like 
marketed that way. I guess because it's not really like a murder mystery or like a crime thriller, but it definitely has some of the film noir aesthetics. 100% totally does. Yeah, even even though it is technically at its core a love story. Right, it's like a love story, it's a drama, it's uh, like like a spy thriller in some ways, it's like a war mm-hmm. drama, like it's got all these different elements blended together so nicely into something that runs so smooth, like everything about it is just so well done and the concepts are so like well portrayed by the people doing the characters, like, I, I don't know, like anything good that I can say about a movie will probably be said about this movie. Amazing, I'm, I'm glad that I found a movie that you would fall in love with finally. Maybe this will kick you off into being like, oh, well, I haven't seen this one, and I haven't seen this one. You know, more than the podcast already makes you do, but I'm glad that Yeah, kind of like that one scene from, um, uh, oh god, why, I can't remember what it's called. Uh, uh, it's a, the, the Holocaust, uh, there's a guy, uh, Schindler's List! I haven't seen that movie, but I know about the scene where he's like, this guy, and that one, I could have saved him! You know, like that whole thing. <laughs> oh man, fuck Schindler's List. <laughs> All right, now I'm sure that's gonna get some negative attention. <laughs> I don't care. I, I, I've made it no secret on this podcast that uh, I feel the same way about Steven Spielberg as I feel about uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Like anytime I watch a Spielberg movie, I'm like, this is a movie. Yep, this definitely fits the criteria of being a movie. Good job, you did it. Yeah, but do you think that Steven Spielberg huffs his own fart gas the same way that Andrew Lloyd Webber does? Um, I don't know if he does, but I mean, Spielberg has like a pretty interesting like story of how he started in Hollywood at the very least. Mm-hmm. Um, so pretty much this has nothing to do with Casablanca. However, no, of course <laughs> um, not. Pretty much Spielberg went on a Universal backlot tour. Um, not in Florida or anything. This was like this was in hollywood before like the theme park of it was there he went there right and he hopped off the tram and just started like doing stuff for people in the studio and that's how he got started wow so he is literally breaking and entering he broke and entered but then like pretty much made it to the point where like he was indispensable like they had to keep him there interesting and by the time Uh, anyone realized what he did he'd already directed fucking et you know what? Job security. Hell yeah. You know what? If a random kid can just jump off of a bus and come and do your job, it was never your job in the first place. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure that there's more than one person in Hollywood that had the same experience where they just kind of like jumped off a bus and ended up in something. <laughs> it just reminds me of the... I'm Since the last episodes of BoJack came out, um, I'm just re-watching the whole series. Um, it just reminds me of that scene where Mr. Peanut Butter accidentally becomes the star of mr peanut butter's house yeah yeah and then he like accidentally becomes governor of california or something yeah i still i still think todd should have been governor because he technically won the ski race i cannot believe we're talking about this all right right this is the (laughs) furthest from casablanca you can get okay so casablanca john you loved this movie you also love alcohol that sounds horrible, but it is true. So yes, it is. I am assuming you made me a banging ass cocktail. So play that funky alcoholism, John boy. Let me have it. All right. So to start, this movie basically takes place in a bar. So Correct. 
there is a lot going on. There's a lot of alcohol being consumed. There's a lot of alcohol being served. Uh, there's a little more than we have time to talk about here. So I selected like three drinks that I want to talk about in like an explanatory kind of way. And then I made one based on those drinks. So Ooh. the first one is going to be the French 75. So this one is where one of the Germans comes in with the girl that was hitting on Rick and then orders two French 75s. Okay, so the French 75 is a champagne cocktail. A lot of these are going to be champagne cocktails. Casablanca is like unoccupied France, quote unquote. It's like, uh, it's in occupied French territory. So there's going to be a lot of French influence. Naturally, there's going to be a lot of French alcohol because France. So mm -hmm. the French 75 is an ounce of gin, half an ounce of lemon juice, half an ounce of simple syrup, and about five ounces of chilled champagne or however much it takes to fill up the rest of the champagne fluid after you put the other ingredients in there. Now, this drink was actually not made in France. It was made in New York City. Uh, after World War One, the French 75 name actually comes from the cannon used in World War One by the French military, 75mm cannon. Really? Yeah, so this was popular among people coming back from the war, because a lot of them coming back from Europe at least came to New York to go somewhere else, or stopped in New York and stayed in New York when they came back from the war. Okay, so it was made in cannons? Or it's named no, after no, the it cannon? wasn't... <laughs> It was named after the cannon, but I tell you what, though, that's like a super big, like, high-class party thing. If you could get, like, a replica 75-millimeter cannon, and you could fill it with French 75 and just have one guy beer-bonging it from the bottom, that would be lit. That would be fucking A game right there. I, I feel like it would be very metallic when it comes out. And also, I guess you would have to drill some sort of, like, hole in the bottom of the cannon, therefore destroying any kind of like you know money that you would be getting on selling that cannon at a later date but anyway i digress yeah you could probably open the breach and just start sucking you could probably be good i'd be more worried about the sugar than anything else <laughs> or the fact that you put like 18 gallons of champagne down a cannon barrel but you know whatever it's fine or that you were also suggesting that someone drink 18 gallons of champagne in one go yeah, of course. Uh, one big chug, 18 gallons. All right, let me do some quick math here. So, like, a gallon of water weighs a little over 8 pounds. Uh, champagne is heavier than water because of the sugar, so I'm going to put that at about 9 pounds. 9 times 18, that's a lot of pounds of liquid to be consuming. I'm going to go ahead and say this is probably impossible. I'm going to go ahead and say, yeah, you'd probably die from alcohol poisoning, first of all. And second, you'd be, like literally exfoliating water out of your pores like it would literally just be coming out of yeah probably you'd just be waterlogged as hell so anyway that's one of the cocktails uh it's normally served in a champagne glass sometimes out of a collins glass which we've used before it's like a long cylindrical glass um the second one is the champagne cocktail okay so that sounds really generic but it's actually a pretty popular way to drink champagne in a cocktail form so what you do for this one is have two dashes of angostura bitters a third ounce of cognac and about three ounces of champagne and drop in a sugar cube now i'm not usually a big fan of dropping sugar into a cocktail because it's kind of gritty on the bottom i think that the old-fashioned is probably the most acceptable form of doing this and maybe i'm overlooking a couple um but i really prefer to use simple syrup so if you were to do this type of cocktail uh you'd probably be best served doing the um the simple syrup unless you're just really into having like the sugar grit in the bottom of a cocktail and you're, you're not even muddling anything into this so there's not really a point i don't think right like um and of course this is usually going to be served in like a like a wine glass or maybe a brandy snifter or champagne flute or something like that and if it's in a champagne flute like what do you think you're going to reach the sugar in the bottom of the glass anyway it's like a six inch tall glass not even to mention how are you going to play the flute with all that champagne in it that's a good question, Zach. You gotta luge it out, just like you do with the 75 millimeter. 
So, okay, a, a, a beer bong from a flute, or I guess a champagne cocktail from a flute, would probably be easier to do it would be taking like a like a shot from like a long test tube but however that flute is now going to be unusable due to the sugar absolutely it would be destroyed okay Uh, you would have to like ultrasonic clean it to get all that garbage out of there uh yeah not talking about a literal flute the champagne flute being like the tall champagne glass just for those of you that are really confused about what we're talking about right now but it is called a champagne flute hey i learned something yeah all right so the last drink i want to talk about from the movie is really really simple so someone actually orders two Quantros. all right so if you remember back like 12 or so episodes i talk a little bit about Quantro in that it is a in my opinion a rather useless spirit because we have triple sec and Quantro is a triple sec type spirit it's a little stronger and it has brandy in it so i got a little bit of background information for those of you that were maybe more interested in knowing about Quantro. so uh first invented in 1849 by the Quantro brothers in france uh, it's an orange flavored liqueur basically they took pure alcohol made from beet sugar and made it into a liquor with orange peels so it's got that sweet liquory flavor um from the beet sugar alcohol and it also is flavored by the orange and it gives you a orange flavored liquor pretty simple right uh it was actually made up until 1990 by the same family and in 1990 they merged with remy martin the cognac company to make the drink that we know today which is largely the same but better distributed so that that's that's where triple sec comes from that it is a similar class of liquor. Um, triple Sec is a bit more simple, and Cointreau, it, it kind of falls into the, like, brandy curse, where, like, cognac is brandy, but not all brandies are cognac, because cognac is made under very specific circumstances in a very specific place with specific ingredients. Cointreau is kind of like that. It has to be made in a specific place, and, of course, trademarks, because the company owns the recipe for Cointreau, and it's been, like, a closely guarded secret, kind of like the Coca-Cola secret formula for, like, centuries now. It's just, it's just rats. Well, that's the thing, Zach, is that actually I can't really tell you because up until literally in this episode, I have never drank Cointreau Neat. And that's what I'm going to do for you guys today. Oh, okay. Right here in my hands, if you can hear this, glug, glug, glug. I have a bottle of Cointreau and I'm going to pour it into this mini snifter glass and taste test it for you live on the podcast. Uh Uh-oh, exclusive. John tries alcohol. Yeah, right? After all the years that I've been doing cocktails and stuff, I've never actually drank Cointreau neat before. But that's what they do in the movie. They order just two Cointreaus. So I imagine it's just plain in the glass or on the rocks. We don't really see it, but I mean, it's a French liqueur. It makes sense. Time and place. It was definitely popular at the time, so why not? Uh, Smell in the bottle. I can definitely get the orange peel on it. Uh, Where with triple sec, it's a very sweet, almost like, um, I don't want to say orange soda kind of vibe. This is mm-hmm. a little bit more sophisticated. There's like a herbal note. You definitely get the zestiness from the orange peel. Almost even a little bit of the pith. You know, like that white portion underneath the skin of the orange? Yeah, 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 yeah. Almost a little bit of that. So here we go. We're going to pour it out. Got the snifter glass here. If I had a Glen Carn glass available, I would probably use that just because I prefer those. But I don't right now. So I'm just going to do this. So, all right. It is clear. Um, this is 40% ABV for those of you that don't actually know, whereas triple sec is a lot lower. It's generally less than 30%, depending on the variety you get. Your DeKuyper, I want to say, is about 24%, and that's like your common bar fare um, triple sec. Comes in that funky, like, big bottom bottle with the skinny neck. Mm. 
All right, well, uh, on the nose, uh, a little less dramatic in the orange. All right, well, here we go. Down the hatch. It's a bit of a tasty here. All right, so on the nose, it retains that orangey quality. It is sweeter in the mouth than it is smelling from the bottle. Okay. And even on the nose out of the glass, it's very sweet. Um, but not, like, sickeningly sweet. It's got a very balanced flavor. You, you get a mouthful of flavor that comes off sweet after the fact. Um, you know what, Zach? I think I might have changed my mind a little bit on Cointreau. Okay. Um, it is not just triple sec. It is something a little more. However, I don't know that it's worth the $41 I spent on this bottle. Jesus Christ. Um, I mean, it is very expensive. So... Does it have like a brandy or like a cognac like like feel to it or is it or is it purely just like triple sec? Like it is a lot more like triple It's like a triple sec that's way stronger and more sophisticated. If you wanted something that had a little bit more of the Cointreau vibe or excuse me, not Cointreau. You want something with a little bit more of the cognac vibe. You're going to want Grand Marnier. Another spirit that I really have not ventured too far into, but that is an orange liqueur and cognac mixture whereas this is truly just a orange liqueur okay so i guess i guess the real question here is is it drinkable on its own or would you much rather have that in a cocktail well i just went back for a second sip so i'm gonna say that you totally could drink this neat uh so on its own you could drink it on the rocks as well this would probably be better on the rocks you'd want it cold Uh but um i i think this is worthwhile i think that if you're into orange-flavored stuff, like maybe you have a couple orange cocktails you're really into, that this Cointreau would be a good choice for you. Uh, your decision-making will lead you to whether you think it's actually worth the money or not. But um, not bad. This is something that I personally would probably put more so into cocktails. Ooh, could you use it to make like a uh, like an orange creamsicle cocktail? You know, actually, I think this would be a pretty good way to do that. It definitely has the flavor profile for that. Maybe that, like some vanilla vodka or some rum or something to get those kind of molassesy notes. Uh, we're getting really deep down the alcohol hole here. Um, <laughs> Cointreau is generally used in like a margarita or a cosmopolitan sidecar. Any variations on those are generally going to include Cointreau. Uh, the margarita, of course, being a tequila in Cointreau. The cosmopolitan is like a Cointreau vodka cranberry thing. And the sidecar is actually brandy in Cointreau. Uh, so that is more like what you were talking about earlier with does it have like a cognac vibe to it that's what they're going for with the sidecar where it's got like lemon cognac or brandy and Cointreau in it beautiful I love it now yeah I wouldn't leave you hanging though we do have an original cocktail for this episode and it is a doozy okay let's get right into it all right, so for those of you that are maybe a little, uh, we'll say, hungover from Valentine's Day, maybe it's a literal hangover, maybe it's a metaphorical hangover, maybe you got stood up on a date and you want something to, you know, cleanse your soul, here's something for you. This is called The Lovely Occupation, and it is based on the French 75. Oh, all right, so get your uh, get your 75mm cannons ready, you're going to want to douse your sorrows in this. Yeah, so there's a lot that you're going to need to set up this cocktail. Uh, the first one is going to be a champagne flute. Okay, you want to chill it, have it on standby. Uh, in that glass, you're going to want to put a few mint leaves and a few strawberry slices. So that's pretty simple. Uh, then you're going to want to make, or buy, I guess, a chocolate-covered strawberry. So 
This is a little outside of what I normally do for these cocktails, but I'll actually tell you how to make the chocolate-covered strawberry as well. So you already got strawberries on hand because you needed them to put in the glass. So if you want to make like a personal size portion of this, you can get a small pot, small saucepan, I guess. Uh, put in about two tablespoons of semi-sweet chocolate chips, two tablespoons of bittersweet chocolate chips, and a tablespoon of unsalted butter, and do a secondary heating method to heat it all up and blend it together. What that means is you're going to take a big pot with water in it and put the small pot into the big pot surrounding it with the water and turn the heat on. So that way it heats the inside evenly and you don't scorch the chocolate to the bottom of the pan. Mmm, okay. Yeah, and once you've done that, you can cut the top off the strawberry, stick it on a fork, roll it in the chocolate, take it out, set it on the plate, put a little bit of sea salt on top, and put it in your fridge or freezer to let the chocolate harden. That's important for later. That's going to be your garnish. So for the actual cocktail portion, what you're going to do is get your shaker with ice. You're going to put you're going to put three quarter ounces of London dry gin, three quarter ounces of slow gin, a half ounce of lemon juice, a half ounce of strawberry syrup, and you're going to shake it up. Shake it pretty vigorously. Then you're going to want to strain that out into the glass over the strawberries and mint leaves, and then you're going to top it off with brute champagne. Okay. Yeah. Once you're done with that, you'll take a strawberry and you'll cut the sides off to get one sliver of chocolate-covered strawberry and put that on the edge of the glass. There you go. That's the lovely occupation. It's sweet. It's a little tart. It's everything that you want in a nice post-Valentine's Day cocktail. Beautiful. Beautiful. I'm so proud of you, Johnny. That that seems like a big passion project for you. You you uh. It really was. You 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 made chocolate. You made chocolate for this cocktail, and I'm so proud of you. That I did. Honestly, I think this is maybe the most ambitious cocktail I've done for this show. Um, and for those of you that don't remember how to make strawberry syrup, we used it... Uh, oh, it was during Halloween. I think it was for the uh, Maria's Garden cocktail for Frankenstein? I believe so. I believe yeah, so. Uh, I, I did it with fresh strawberries this time, and I gotta say, I was a little more impressed with the frozen strawberries, but I also made this strawberry syrup using a microwave, which I don't recommend. So, uh, who knows why that is? Why it didn't work out? <laughs> It beats us. It beats us. Yeah. All right. So let's get right into the movie. You got your cocktail. You got it made. Unless you're driving, don't don't drink that and drive. Don't do it. Yeah, especially don't get yourself a bottle of Cointreau and just go down the road drinking it. It's super conspicuous. It's a big fat brown bottle. Yeah, you're definitely going to get caught. Uh, let's talk about Casablanca for a little bit. This movie was directed by Michael Curitz. Uh, who actually, interestingly, did not have another big film after this one. It was produced by Hal B. Wallace, written by Julius J. Epstein and Philip G. Epstein and Howard Koch. Uh, I believe it's pronounced Coke, and I cannot let this go without mentioning, uh, first off, Hollywood pedophiles, and uh, <laughs> second off, the Koch brothers? How can you have a movie written by two Epsteins and a Coke and expect me to not have a conspiracy theory ready for you? Um, go ahead. What's the conspiracy? They're all pedophiles. They're all pe Oh, okay. Pedophiles. John is convinced. All right. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I'm not going to disparage anyone's name publicly, but I'm just going to say... Epstein didn't kill himself. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that. <laughs> However, let's talk about this movie. Uh, the movie's actually based on an unpublished play by uh, Murray Burnett and Joan Allison called "Everybody Comes to Ricks." Huh? Yeah. So it's It was uh, unproduced, undone until about like 1991, I believe. They finally did a stage adaption of it. Really? <laughs> yeah. Very, uh, very interesting. We'll we'll get into how that kind of how an unpublished play became a uh, Hollywood movie. We'll get into that a little bit later. 
Um, but for right now, let's get through this basic Wikipedia info. Um, mm-hmm. The music was by Max Steiner. Very good, by the way. I was super impressed with the soundtrack. Yeah, it's it's like you know it's like the Casablanca suite when you hear it. Like it's super mm-hmm. recognizable. Um, this movie stars Humphrey Bogart as Rick Blaine, Ingrid Bergman yeah. as Ilsa Lund, Paul Heinard as Victor Laszlo, Claude Rains as Captain Reynolds, uh, who actually we barely did not do his other famous movie, which would which is The Invisible Man. Yeah, I think when you say Renault, you have to have already drank a little bit of French stuff. You know, you got to be Captain Renault. Renault. Anyway, that, that's how that's actually pronounced. <laughs> And then uh, Dooley Wilson as Sam. Yes. Honestly, he's one of my favorite characters. He is a great character. Uh, big, um, what's it called, uh, misquote. Uh, people always say, uh, play it again, Sam. That's actually not ever said in the movie at all. <laughs> uh, the, huh. the closest that anyone comes to saying play it again, Sam, in the movie is um, when Ilsa says, play it, play, uh whatever the fuck that song's called again for me that's that is the closest anyone comes to saying play it again sam it's like a misquote that like you've probably heard in parodies before that line was never actually spoken in this movie huh the more you know the more you know the more in filmation you know ha 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 corporate synergy <laughs> anyway the budget for this movie was eight hundred seventy-eight thousand dollars and the box office return was $3.7 million. That's a pretty good return. I think after marketing, they probably broke even and made some money, right? Yeah, uh, they for sure made some money. Like, this movie um, really gained its, like, legacy of later years. It, it was considered a good film at the time, but I just don't think that they uh, they marketed it the right way. Uh-huh. They didn't market it as the best film ever made, even though it may be one of the best films ever made. It is frequently considered one of the best films ever made. Um, as a matter of fact, I think it's in the top... It's consistently been in the top ten, like when AFI, um, which is the American Film Institute, um, not the band that's saying uh, Miss Murder. Um, right. Uh, not good live, turns out. <laughs> oh, have you seen them live? No, I just watched a video. I was talking to Sean, one of our mutual friends, uh, about live bands or something that we'd want to see live, and I was like, you know what, I bet AFI is pretty good live. I looked up on YouTube, they're alright. Um, you know who's really bad live? <laughs> Fucking the All-American Rejects. Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember that. We were at that together. Oh, yeah, that's right. And we were, I, I remember texting you, I was like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, not the best. No, not the best. Um... Anyway, so where I was going with that is Casablanca is consistently in the top 10. Like, every time they update that list, which I think is, like, every 10 years, I believe, um, Uh it's consistently been in the top 10. Like, it it and Citizen Kane are, like, neck and neck, which is another movie I think you need to see. Yeah, after watching this, I'm even more excited for it. Okay, so you're getting into the classics now. I guess so. I mean, if this is what the classics have to offer, I mean, I know everything else is going to kind of dull in comparison, but at the same time, I'm very into it. Yeah, like, (laughs) I'm just imagining you um, getting a Turner Classic Movie subscription, like, pretty soon. I just... Dude, it's great. I'm good. They're they're classics for a reason. They're classics for a reason. Anyway, um, this movie was released on November 26th, 1942 in New York, and then January 23rd in 1943. 
So was there any particular reason for them to spread it out like that? Like, I'm not used to there being months in between. Like, I'm used to either having, like, a regular release and then a big release immediately following after, or it being small release and then much later getting a wide release. Um, I'm actually not sure what the big delay was. Um, I do think that there was, uh, I think, th I think they might have edited, edited some of it, perhaps, or maybe, um, it just took a while to get the prints done. Maybe, like, they, because, I mean, we'll get into it later, but they wrapped this movie in August and had it prepped for a November 26th premiere. Yeah. So, I'm pretty sure the delay here was, uh, making copies of the print. Because it's not like it is today, where they just uh, take the movie, put it on a bunch of hard drives, send it out to all the movie theaters in America. They actually had to reproduce, like, in dark rooms, like, all of these, you know, film reels. And, like, they're giant. And it's usually, like, four to five film reels. So they had to, A, prep all of those, make them, and send them out. I mean, I just can't see how they would have been done editing the movie. Like, let alone by the time it premiered. But then also to have it, like, mass massively reproduced. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's that has to do with, like, the space and time of it. Yeah, I guess when we're talking about, like, dates that straddle a year, you know, going from 42 to 43, it seems longer than it is. But it's really only about two months until the wide release. So I think considering that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, at least. And uh, maybe the short editing time is a testament to the skill of the people making it. Oh, yeah, for sure. And we will get into that. But first, um, let's get a summary for this movie. So if you were like John and you've never seen this movie, hey, what the fuck are you doing listening to this? Go watch that movie and then come back to this. If that means that you have to pause this, go to work, go home, watch the movie, and then finish listening to this on the way to work tomorrow, then so fucking be it. Do it. This is a great movie. John loves it, I love it, you'll love it. And if you don't, then fuck you. <laughs> but anyway, let's have a small summary just so it can entice people to go either watch the movie for the first time or maybe, you know, to revisit it. And for that, we have to invite our good friend and, uh, well, friend, um, <laughs> Frank Synopsis. Come on in, Frank. Hey, it is me. I am back. Fresh in from the interrogation rooms of the Secret Service. Oh, um, so were you being interrogated or were you interrogating? Well, I guess that really depends on the perspective of the individual being asked. In my perspective, uh, it was a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of column B. Not necessarily what they thought. Uh, you see, I heard we were doing Casablanca. I thought I'd do a little bit of recon. I knew with a little bit of Espanol that Casablanca actually translates to White House. Mmm. Okay. I can see where the rabbit hole's going. So... I went to the actual titular White House, and uh, things did not go so great for me. I tried my little snake trick, you know, released little snakeys into there. Uh, they've been really, uh, they've been really good to me since our last episode. Okay, so what? How did you get to Washington D.C. from Central Park? Did you walk? Did you hitchhike? Did you take a bus? Did, how did you do that, Frank? It is always bus fare. Uh, we don't pay you. You know what? I don't want to know. I don't want to know what you do outside of this. Just go on. What, how, what, how, what were the snakes doing to the White House? Well, they didn't do too much, but as soon as they saw that I was releasing them, they uh, they, they found me pretty quickly. I, I'm kind of easy to spot. Yeah, a 120-year-old uh, man who smells like piss and brandy is usually pretty easy to find. That I am. That I am. <laughs> so what happened in the interrogation room? 
Well, most of it is a blackout blur for me now, but uh, I got kicked a little bit. Uh, they uh, brought the snakes back in and used them against me. Uh, that was a bit of a table turn there that I was not really expecting. And uh, then I woke up in an alleyway back in New York City. I don't really know what happened between then and now. Uh, it's something that the uh, Secret Service probably got the CIA to help them out with. Also, wouldn't be the first time I've run into the CIA. <laughs> okay. They're not going to come the here, right? Why. Like, you're not, like, currently wanted, correct? Sure. <laughs> You know what? Why don't you just do what I paid you for and get out of here before any operatives show up? I can't. We can't afford this today. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get right into the movie. This Casablanca, great, great movie. The year is 1942. The United States has just entered World War II. Betty White has just turned a supple, dare I say, nubile, 20 years old. Rick Blaine runs a gin joint called Rick's American Cafe in Nazi-occupied Casablanca. Rick and his friends are stranded on Casablanca as expatriates, and Rick dreams of one day being able to return to America. A woman named Ilsa Lund, Rick's ex-lover, walks in one day with her husband, resistance leader Victor La... Edit point. Resistance leader Victor Laszlo. A love triangle ensues around a backdrop of Nazis, chain-smoking, and rampant, yet somehow functional, alcoholism. Beautiful. Thank you, Frank. Um, now get the fuck out of here. Um, go through craft services or whatever it is the fuck you do, and then leave. I don't want to see you here when I leave the building today. How about some bus fare? I we will give you your standard two fifty, which is the industry standard. All right. Well, I'm out. All right. See you, Frank. Ugh, John, I can't believe this guy. You got to get a better guy for this. It smells like it smells like snakes and brandy in here. I did not know snakes had a smell, but I definitely smell it now. <laughs> well, yeah, when you have enough of them in one place, it kind of collects. It's kinda... Can we ever figure out what Frank's using the gun for? Um, Frank is somehow using the gun to release snakes. <laughs> what? So I, what I'm guessing he has done is um create a chamber within a gun that holds snakes and it will like either shoot out or like evenly disperse snakes when he shoots the gun i i don't know how effective it is i don't know what kind of snakes he's using but i definitely don't want to be on the end of that barrel to find out okay i'm not even gonna ask any more questions i i there's not gonna be any good answers there's never any good answers when it comes to frank synopsis but anyway did you leave some like wet pictures of betty white outside um i did not but i know what they are and um, i am going to ask security to come pick that up <laughs> wait we have security um well we're going to because i'm not picking up those um anyway all right that's kind of gross <laughs> all right so let's get into some pre-production goodness for this film uh murray burnett and joan allison wrote everybody comes to ricks in 1938 and it went unproduced so just no Interesting. one no one wanted to make this play I've, i haven't read the play i haven't seen the play i don't know if it's good or not but anyway they were convinced to sell the film to Warner Brothers, and Warner Brothers actually gave them $20,000 for the script and for the rights to make the film version of the script, or of the play, I mean. And uh, that was actually the most anyone had paid for an unproduced play at the time. Yeah, $20,000 really doesn't seem like a lot considering, but I mean, in the time, like 1940, okay, $20,000 is a lot more money, and they made like, what, $3.7 million you said on it? Mm-hmm but the okay so and the the horrible thing about it is is that they didn't think anything was going to come of it because i mean studios buy the rights 
the things all the time and then they never make it or like they'll make it and it doesn't really make any money back so they actually sold all the rights to the story to warner brothers so they actually no longer had any control over the ip huh all right i mean when you don't think it's going to amount to anything you got to get what you can i guess yeah i mean i think that's probably what it was i think warner brothers might have known what they had and were like okay we will give you a lump sum of $20,000 now, or you can wait and see if this movie makes any money. You might potentially make more money, but however, like $20,000 in like 1941, like during like the Great Depression, that would have been like a no-brainer. Like you would have absolutely taken that money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coming off the Depression, I could definitely see how that's a better deal. Oh, it's a way better deal. Like, are you kidding me? Anyway, so filming was scheduled... It was scheduled for this. Okay. <laughs> Filming was scheduled for April 10th, 1942, but did not actually begin until May 25th, 1942. And filming was complete by August 3rd, 1942. So that's what I'm saying. Like, literally, like, like three months. Three months yeah, to, to, to edit a whole movie. Like, three months and some days, but like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was out everywhere by the following year. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty quick turnaround. They used to pump these movies out, but I just... Knowing what they had to do to, like, splice the movie together, and then not only that, but to, like, put it all together. Like, taking the separate, like, film reels and putting them together. Like, I mean, I don't know, maybe they just were really, really good at doing this back then. But just, like, watching videos of people doing, like, old-school projectors like that, I'm just like, how, how did you do that? Like in that short of amount of time like i would have never wanted to do any of that yeah i mean when it's analog that's just harder mm -hmm. there's just more involved and i mean like you said the scale of it and the scale of it and like the way they were doing it back then was probably somewhat to blame for it more than likely but anyway so it, most of the production of this film went very Hollywood. Like it was the people came in, they did their job. There was no like major drama. But what is interesting is this film was actually shot in sequence because only the first half of the script was available at the time of shooting. Interesting. Yes. And um, they actually had to convince Humphrey Bogart to be in this movie. Like, he was contracted with Warner Brothers. He had so many movies, he had to make four Warner Brothers. And uh, yeah. they pretty much forced his hand into being in Casablanca. It seems like such a genuine production, though. Like, I know it's one thing when you're a professional and, like, this is your job, this is what you do. If you're an actor, you act and you do the best because you don't want to, you know, come off as not being a good actor or anything. But, like, if he didn't even know he was going to do this, he didn't approach them about being like, hey, I want to be in this. Like in uh, Silence of the Lambs, Jodie Foster came and said, I want to be in this. Like, that shows some, like, initiative, but in this case, it was just handed to him and said, hey, we need you to do this one. That's what happened? Yep, pretty much. And he was like, I don't know. And then they were like, well, we're Warner Brothers and we're telling you to do it, so you're gonna do it. Um, another interesting thing was that, uh, oh, fuck, what's her name? I keep getting her real name and her movie name mixed up. Uh, okay, Ingrid sorry. Bergman. Ingrid Bergman. Yep, okay, so Ingrid Bergman was actually five centimeters taller than Humphrey Bogart, and she later claimed that the director made Bogart, made Humphrey Bogart stand on platforms to be taller than her. Uh, old Hollywood was such a fun place to be. 
Oh, man. Well, I mean, they do that all the time because, like, you don't want... I mean, not that I care, but, like, I guess you don't want the woman being taller than the man for whatever reason, especially because this is the 1940s. I mean, hey, you think it's bad now, but get on Twitter and tell me you can't find some tweets of people being like, if he ain't six foot one and make a million dollars a year and have an 18-inch penis, I don't want nothing to do with him. Yep, and that's because they buy into shit like this. Like, they would not, like, people somehow would not believe the love story if, like, the woman was superior to the man in any way. Like, whether that be height or penis size or anything. I mean, considering and when looking at the way the story is written, I feel like she actually does go through quite a bit more than he does, like, if we're talking about strength of character, I feel like she's had a lot more to do. She's had a lot more to prove and get through than he has. I agree, because she has a lot to choose from. Like, she left Rick because she thought that Laszlo was dead. Anyway, we're going to get into that later, because that's actually a pretty interesting censorship issue. Um, but, you know, like, I agree. I think she has a lot more to go through. I think she has a lot more at stake. Like, she's either going to lose her life, her husband, or her lover. Like, she's going to lose something at the end of this movie. Right. And so, and Rick, really, all he has is he might lose the bar, and he doesn't very much seem to care about any of that, other than it's like a free, limitless supply of booze for him. Right, which is an important thing to have. Like, don't get me wrong. <laughs> oh, for sure. He, Rick is just such an interesting character. Like, just very moral but just so like just dead to the world like just I, I feel him I feel him so much he's a very Han Solo type yes I, I would agree like if you if you love like Han Solo type characters like very sarcastic very you know rogue. cold very rogue but also like with a heart of gold under there and like you know they're gonna do the right thing because they know it's the right thing to do even though you know probably like the the cynic in them is you know fighting them to do whatever the fuck they actually want to do and it's it's just a he's just a good character like this is a good archetype and i love it and i think humphrey bogart probably plays this archetype the best like he just looks like really that good. guy like if you saw him walking around you would think he's that kind of guy i see it and maybe he built that maybe that's just the way it is in the natural world maybe it is Humphrey Bogart is an interesting character. Um, he actually... <laughs> they found a, a photo from the production, like, around, like, the 1990s, I believe, of him playing chess on the set of Casablanca. And, a and there was, like, a note with it to, like, a pen pal in New York. Apparently, mm -hmm. what they used to do was take a picture of the chessboard and send it to each other so they were playing chess via mail interesting which i don't know if stamps costed the same amount that they do today but holy fuck that's an expensive game of chess like i guess i mean i guess so yeah i guess now what you could technically do is just play it via snapchat or i'm sure there's like an online chess game you could play with whoever you want to play with but i, I kind of feel like this is enduring and interesting like especially for so this too. time yeah, I mean, like you said, the modern equivalent being Snapchat, but, you know, nobody plays chess anymore, so they just, like, take pictures of their butthole or whatever, you know, and send that to them because they can't be there to actually show them their butthole in person. <laughs> Got that new bleach. Anyway. <laughs> oh, God. Speaking What's of wrong with the color? What's wrong with the natural color that God intended? 
<laughs> I mean, hey man, you know, if you could have a white, if you could change the color of your asshole, would you not do it? I mean, like, make it purple. Fuck it. Why not? Life's short. Life's short. Bleach your butthole. Eat purple ketchup. <laughs> Did they still make Easy Squirt? Fuck no. <laughs> Dude, I want some Easy Squirt now. I hate ketchup, but I'll eat Easy Squirt. Anyway, um, <laughs> back to the movie. A good number of the Nazi officers were actually German-Jewish men who had escaped the Nazis. That was one thing that I was thinking about while watching the movie, was that at this point in time, this was probably a very controversial thing to do to depict as many Nazis as there were. And they're not just outright monsters in the film, they're like legitimate characters in some cases. Like, they're not good mm -hmm. guys, but they're not despicable necessarily. Um, I think it was just more realistic. Like, I mean, they say that not all Germans, like, really... Not all Nazis, especially, like, in the military. A lot of them probably didn't know exactly what was all going on. And they oh, no, were Most just... of them were Bavarian farm boys that were conscripted by the government to go fight a war they knew basically nothing about. Right. All they knew was take the land, seize the land, um... You know, whatever they wanted to do, pretty much, like... They were out to become the new powerhouse, and that's what a lot of them thought that they were doing. Now, whether they're lying or not is up to you, but, you know, I, I, would, I would venture to say that some Nazis were probably like these guys, like, just trying to be diplomatic, just trying to do what they're supposed to be doing. However, fuck the Nazis, and this is probably, like, the biggest fucking fuck you that they could have had. Like, yeah, I'm sure it felt cathartic in a way. Oh, yeah, especially considering that they're talking about the Gestapo. Like, these are not your regular German army dudes. These are, like, the secret police type guys. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones that went ahead into unoccupied France here in Casablanca to be like, all right, there's going to be Nazis. We're looking for people that don't like Nazis, and you know, because they're running around doing all this extra shit because they're the Gestapo. That's what they do. They're extra. They're extra. <laughs> they're, they also went and hid in South America after this was all over. Anyway, yep. Uh, uh, the cafe was actually the only original set piece built for this film. The rest of them were actually old sets that were on the back lot of the Warner Brothers Studios. Seriously? Yeah. Like, the, the cafe was built for the film because it, it's such an integral part. Like, most of the film takes place in the bar. It takes place yes. in the Cafe All-American. But... Uh, or Rick's Cafe American, whatever whatever it's called. Um, and actually, the play all takes place in the bar. Like, none of it takes place anywhere else other than the bar. Interesting. I mean, the, the bar is so well done. Like, the decor yeah. is so good. It's like, it, it's classy, but it's also kind of exotic in that it's an American place in a non-American environment. Mm -hmm. Which is kind of like, it's an interesting interjection that we don't really think about too much in the States. How you can go to other places and be like, oh, well, here's a little American cultural spot. The same way that you might go to like, uh, I don't know, like, like a Greek restaurant here in the U.S. And be like, oh, here's a little Greek spot. You know what I'm saying? Right. It's... <sighs> It's just so interesting that no one's tried to recreate this set and make an actual bar out of it. That is interesting. Maybe we can do that. Dude, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I would be interested in owning this bar. Honestly, one day I hope to own a bar, and I hope it's like this. Yeah, dude, like, do it up classy. Like, if you're gonna own a bar, it might as well be classy. Yeah. There's so many, like, bullshit bars out there, and there's so many bullshit clubs. Like, why can't we have, like, a 40s, like, you know gin joint like a like a like a fancy gin house i'm into it Dude. i'm 100 into it all right uh we're gonna start a patreon and then you guys can donate 
so that we can open up Zach and John's American Cafe. Uh, where are we going to do it? I guess we, I guess it would have to be central so that it would be easy for both of us to get there from California and PA. So I guess, like, Montana? Absolutely not. We're doing it in Vegas. Hell yeah. All right. We're moving to Vegas. Pack up the bags. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. So dis- another thing I found interesting was despite their obvious chemistry, uh, Humphrey Bogart and um, Ingrid Berman rarely spoke on set. Like, they never spoke to each other other than one conversation they had where they both were talking about how they wanted to get out of the movie somehow. Really? Yeah, like, neither one of them wanted to do this movie. It's actually really interesting. Like, a lot of the people they got to do this movie didn't really want to do this movie. I mean, I guess nobody believed in it up until it released. Yeah, like, once the finished product was put together. I mean, I don't know, maybe... Because a lot of... Humphrey Bogart actually improvised a lot of these, like, really famous lines. Like, uh, here's looking at you, kid. Yeah. He improvised that. And also... That so many appearances. I know. Well, he improvised it in that first scene, and then they wrote it into the script later on. I see. I see. And I think he also improvised the, uh... This is the start of a beautiful friendship. Uh, I think that's actually a misquote that I just said. I can't remember what the actual quote is. There's a lot of misquotes in this movie. But, um... Yeah, that yeah, was pretty close, right there at the end. Yeah, like he, like he improvised that as well, and he said it like um, it's actually overdubbed. Like they said they because they originally had additional scene of them escaping to um, I believe it's France huh. and opening up another bar. It's uh, him and the uh, that officer played by Claude the, the Rains. Captain. Yeah, so they escaped to France, but then they decided that. You know, that's kind of like a eh ending to this movie. Like, it would be way better to just finish it right here. So they just had Humphrey Bogart come in and, like, overdub a line just to finish the movie off. I don't know. I kind of like it because earlier we were talking about the film noir aspects of this. And I think that really plays into it. The kind of walking off into the fog all cool like. Like, uh, it fits. I I like it. I think that's a good way to do it. Oh, yeah. If they finish this movie in any other way, I I think it would be upsetting. Almost. Like, because I think, like, just having that climax and then having the just like the you know the heartbreak of the ending with like the action and like you know rick is like you know finally off his ass he's like fighting the nazis again he's fighting against like you know just the evils of the world like just Mm -hmm. it's just such a great ending like it's like you see a guy go from like a has-been like beaten up schlub to like you know regaining a part of his former stuff like it's such a beautiful moment for a film like this and it all happens within like five minutes of each other it definitely is and i I, considering how the actors were and putting on such a good performance that way it's kind of mind-blowing it is uh speaking of great performances um dooley wilson was a professional drummer pretending to play the piano I believe that. Uh, for anyone who's actually tried to learn piano seriously, like when I was in school for music, I had to take piano classes, and I'm sure you did too. Yes, you I can did. tell he's not really playing the piano. <laughs> yeah, you can, but still, I mean, like you just you just kind of go along with it because it's it's so iconic, like him playing that piano. Like it's like anytime you see a guy playing a piano, it's always a very similar shot to what they're doing there, and mm-hmm. I I just it's so iconic. Like I love it. Um, and then, uh, speaking of, like, that film noir that we were talking about earlier, reportedly, most of the shadows were painted onto the set. 
really? Yeah, so, like, all the shadows you see, like, in, like, especially in Rick's, um, I guess his apartment above uh, the cafe or inside the cafe, like, most of those shadows are painted on there because they actually couldn't get that, they couldn't get the lighting right within the studio to make it that dark, so they actually had to paint the shadows onto the floor. Huh. To give it that, like, That's... you know, noir aesthetic. That's some silver screen magic right there. Like, that's... Oh, yeah. That's so extra. Well, and, like, the thing is, is, like, it would only work in black and white. And, uh, we'll... We'll, we'll talk about that here in a minute. It's upsetting. But, um, it, it, it has more to do with, like, the aftermath of this film. Um, and actually, uh, speaking of, like, things that were different for the time, um, only three actors from this film were actually American. Really? Yeah, it's unheard of at this time. Like, if it wasn't, like, you know, like, a foreign film, like, only three actors in this were actually American. It was, uh, Rick, um, oh, fuck, the, the girl that, uh, Rick helps her and her husband win money so they can get out of Casablanca. Yeah, the, the Bulgarian girl. And the guy that talks like this. You know who I'm talking about. Very sleazy. It's a very sleazy voice. Anyway. Yeah, 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 that guy. No, I, I tried to find out who he is, and I couldn't figure it out. You thought he was the guy from uh, Dracula, didn't you? Yes! Yeah, I thought I thought that for a good second. I was like, no, it's not. A lot of people had that voice back then. Um, And uh, let's see. What else we got here? Um, oh, I Ingrid Bergman was actually told to play in between the two love roles. Or in huh. between the two, uh, between her two love interests. Because, like, you know, they weren't sure what way they were going to go in the end. Like, actually, Ingrid had no idea who she was going to end up with at the end of the movie until it happened. Really? Yeah, so kind of like uh, Star Wars, where um, they didn't tell anybody other than James Earl Jones <laughs> that um, Darth Vader was Luke's father. I guess it gets more genuine reactions, especially because they were working, like, pretty much with pages that were written maybe five hours ago. Uh-huh. It makes sense. I see that. I, I like that, because especially when you're working with actors who put on a really good show but are not super interested in it, if you throw them a curveball, they have to stay in character to respond to the curveball. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and that's I probably got to get some of the desired response that they're looking for. I, I just think that it would have... I just think that that's a really good way to do it. Like, a lot of directors do that, but I think that this one, her reaction is very genuine. Like, I think she thought she was going to end up with Rick because it's like, you know, a big Hollywood movie. Like, the lead actor always got has to have the girl at the end of the movie, and uh, this one subverts that. It kind of does. And, I mean, you can't even really say that Rick is just the good guy because Victor clearly is also a good guy, and they have a tragic relationship in a sense rick and victor both have a tragic relationship with her right it's it's unfortunate it's an unfortunate circumstance to be in because she technically like because ilsa didn't technically wrong anyone she thought no, that of she not. she thought victor was dead and then when she found out that he wasn't dead like what is she supposed to do that's her husband yeah. And, like, how do you tell someone, like, you've just made a big fool of yourself? You know, like, I mean, I mean mo most people would run. Yeah, I mean, this is, like, an epic poetry-type moment. Like, this is definitely one of those, like, living your life to the fullest, something changes, but you don't stop trying to live your life to the fullest, but now you're going whole hog in two different directions and have to meet in the middle somewhere after the fact. Mm-hmm. And that's almost, like, Shakespearean. 
Like that's it, that's really deep. That's really big. Yeah, and actually, it was a big censorship issue. Really? Yeah, because um, shocker, <laughs> shocker with this Hays Code bullshit. Um, so pretty much, the censors said that um, Ilsa cannot end up with Rick unless Victor is dead or divorces her. Because it was unseemly for a woman to be uh, dating, A, two people at the same time, or B, right. you know, committing adultery against her husband. So the censors pretty much said she either has to end up with uh, Victor, or he has to die, or they have to get divorced somewhere in the movie. Huh. I mean, I so that, I, so that it, I guess. That's so that her morality is not in question. Right, yeah. I get it, but at the same time, that's not real. Like, you know, what's happening in the movie is real. What do you mean? The... It very much could happen. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's within the realm of reality, especially at this time in the country. Yeah. Although, there there seems to be a lot of expatriates in uh, Casablanca, and I'm not entirely sure why. It's never quite explained. It's probably one of those things like, hey... If you're big in the U.S. and you live a good life and you have a long career, you too can go to Florida. <laughs> you too can like, retire I mean, like, to Florida. Casablanca is like a smelly French Margaritaville. I, I hate this. You've just ruined the movie for me. <laughs> Think about it. Everybody's going there. Uh, there's a little bit of political interest. There's a bunch of weird crime going on. I, I guess so. It is Florida. This is Margaritaville. This is stinky French Margaritaville. Uh, and considering this is Margaritaville we're talking about, calling it stinky on top of Margaritaville is quite a statement. <laughs> I think it's redundant, honestly. Like, if you hear the word Margaritaville, you should be like, smells like B.O. and uh, dead toenails. Right. Oh, <laughs> That's too real. Too real. <laughs> anyway, so... That that that's a wrap on the production section of this. Uh, let's get into a little bit of like what happened after the film. Um, it won three out of five Academy Awards. Uh, it won Outstanding Motion Picture, Best Director, and Best Screenplay. But it lost Best Actor for Humphrey Bogart and Best Supporting Actor for Claude Rains. Huh. I I'd love to see the movie they lost to because this was really really good. Yeah. I I regret not looking it up. As a matter of fact, I'll look it up now. No, I'm not. Fuck that. <laughs> Edit point. Okay. Edit point. <laughs> you go look it up. You're the viewer. Um, <laughs> uh, it was originally released on Laserdisc in 1991 and on VHS in 1992. So almost 50 years later, this movie gets released on home video. That is insane. That, that is, is ridiculous to me. That is insane amount of time. It, it had a small Betamax run that I think was like maybe available for like rentals somehow. I'm not sure. Or maybe like just a bunch of people like taped it off of the TV and were like, you know, handing it around to people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Like it's a, like it's a Grateful Dead concert. <sighs> exactly. Like a, oh, sorry. Like a bootleg Fleetwood Mac concert or like a... Yeah, something like that. Anyway, bootleg films. <laughs> bootleg film. Um, and then this is what I was trying to talk about earlier. Uh, Warner Brothers actually had the film colorized in 1980. Huh. And it caused a big controversy. Like, they actually aired it on TBS in the 80s, and everyone was fucking pissed. They uh, let me guess. Uh, painting the shadows on didn't work when you colorized it. No, and also, like, it completely takes away the aesthetic of the film. 
Like, I think that even if color had been, um, you like, used more frequently in this time, uh-huh. like, God, like, why? Why would you colorize this movie? Yeah, it's film noir. It's If you're gonna colorize film noir, it better be Dick Tracy. Well, well and I think Dick Tracy is colorized, um, but... I, I honestly have never seen it. It's from the 90s. Yeah, I know. It's just absolutely ridiculous that they would colorize this film. Like... <sighs> I, I I have nothing else to say about that. Just, like, why would you do that? Like, it completely takes away the aesthetic of the film. And it just... It, that, that it's just a movie. Like, the aesthetic is half the battle in this movie. Like, that's what makes it so appealing. Right. That's what sells it as well as it does. Right. And... Just fuck you, Ted Turner. Just fuck you. <laughs> Thanks for Cartoon Network and Adult Swim, but other than that, fuck you. I don't need to see Seinfeld at any given time of the day. What about the Atlanta Braves? What, are we going to forget about Cheap Nakahoma? I don't want to talk about the Atlanta Braves unless we're talking about Chipper Jones, and even at that, we are way off topic. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> All right, so some more, like, weirder shit that happened in this um, movie is that uh, Sam's Piano was sold in December of 2012 for $600,000. That's a lot. Uh, you remember during the Nirvana Live where Kurt Cobain... I, that narrows it down. Uh, the unplugged MTV. Mm-hmm. Where Kurt Cobain's like, yeah, they tried to sell me Lead Belly's guitar for a half million dollars. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> this is more than that. But I guess that's like $1993. So mm-hmm. yeah, a lot happened between 93 and 2012. Oh, exactly, but uh, namely Kurt Cobain's death. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, uh, we're not gonna even going to talk about inflation. <laughs> oh, exactly. But anyway, so that piano was sold to a private collector, and uh, uh, was it also Sylvester Stallone? Uh, it, bitch, it might have been. Yeah, I mean, he bought a statue of himself, so uh, why not? Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, the last little fun fact I have for you guys is there was like a long-standing rumor that Ronald Reagan was supposed to play Rick. Okay, nah. <laughs> nah. Nah, I, I, I have a hard time believing that. Ronald Reagan was president when? The 80s? Uh-huh. This was filmed in, uh, what, 1942? Yeah. I mean, Ronald Reagan was an actor at this time. I mean, cool. No. <laughs> It was uh, debunked by um, one of the Warner Brothers, like, in an interview years later, and they said that they never, ever, ever wanted anyone other than Humphrey Bogart for this film. Well, even then, they had to, like, strong-arm him into doing it, apparently. Uh, it, exactly, and it became one of his most well-known films. Like, exactly. if not if not his most well-known film. And you know what? Well-earned, actually. I take it back. Well-earned. It's so good. It really is just so good. The performances are so good. The chemistry between the characters is so good. The dialogue is so good. It looks so good. And, like, even the camera work. The camera work is light years ahead of other films at this time. Exactly. It's because they took it, they picked an aesthetic and added it to a story, put great actors, put a good director, put good producers who could get everybody what they needed... They, you put it all together, you add a little bit of professionalism, and you add a little bit of creativity and, like, willing to play with the concept, and you get a great movie like this. So, like, as much as I said, like, in the beginning of this, that it was, like, a very cut-and-dry, yep, it's Hollywood kind of thing, because it was. It was very much Hollywood, but it was just the right crew at the right time that made this movie, and it's just, it's phenomenal. It deserves... I would go on a limb. 
Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it's not Hollywood. Hollywood is this. You know what? Completely agreed. The, the, this is this is classic Hollywood. Like, this is the best. That, this is one of the best of the best. Like, this is as good as it gets. Absolutely love it. Absolutely love it. And for that, that's going to be a wrap on Casablanca. And that's going to be a wrap on our show for today. Um, John, I'm really glad we find, we finally found a movie that you love. I hope that this... You know uh, I hope this might lead to something for you. I hope it does, too. It was so good. I haven't liked a movie this much since Juno. Since Juno. Awesome. All right. So uh, have a great week. Go watch a new movie. Uh, Signing off for For Your Information, I'm Zach. And I'm John. Have a great week, guys. Yeah, the French don't do an awful lot right, but uh, they definitely do hard liquor right, I think. Uh, there have been very few French liquors that I have not appreciated. Uh, the French can keep their fucking liquor. Ah. You know, like, just... I don't know what it is with the French, but, like, I just love, like, shitting on them. Like, anytime uh, me and my fiancé play Mario Kart online, which we do frequently, sometimes a French person will show up. And I make sure to beat them within an inch of their fucking loser life. Like, just go out of my way to make sure I have a green shell get right up behind them and just hit them with it. And then stop and wait for them to come by and then hit them again. I don't even care if I win. As long as I beat them and I hit them with everything I got. This just sounds like the worst exchange from like a mock UN meeting. Like there's a bunch of kids sitting around with podiums and tables and stuff. And like there's the one dude from like, I don't know, maybe the US, maybe like I don't know, Germany or like any other like major industrial power being like, every time I see a French kid on Mario Kart, I, I just beat the fuck out of him. I hate those guys. And then the one kid who's not even from France just sitting at the Maki wind meeting is like, what are you doing this for, bro? What are we doing here? Why are, why are you bringing Mario Kart into this? All actual UN arguments should be settled in Mario Kart. Huh. I, I, I can get down with this. I think it's probably better than most of the ways that they solve problems. I mean, it's it's a mix of skill and luck. Like you get all the countries that are let's see, let's say they're uh, talking about uh, fracking. I don't know some issue that's like dead, or it's not really dead, but we just stopped talking about it because other shit happened. Like you know, the Kardashians got a new dog or some shit. And love that shit. And so they just uh, you know, it's like okay, once and for all, fracking or no fracking. Um, everyone that is for fracking is on this team, and everyone that's against is on this team. Fucking Mario Kart right now. It's like a tournament. Like, there's brackets and shit. And whoever Interesting. wins... Interesting. Uh, whatever. That's just the way the cookie crumbles, huh? That's just the way the cookie crumbles. I mean, it's fair. Yeah. International policy decided by a Switch game. But, no, 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 no. It has to be Double Dash. Oh, okay, so this is what, um, GameCube then? Yeah, this is, is this, Ga- this is GameCube era. The Double Dash is the one where you, uh, you have two characters and they, um, switch back and forth. Oh, okay, okay, I see what you mean. The gameplay mechanic on that game is so great, and I don't know why they won't do it again. Like, even, like, even if, like, just Mario Kart 8 for the Switch, like, they just download, they just, like, made a add-on that was, like, a mini double dash remake like i i I just want it like i want to play that game again but i'm not paying 85 dollars for a gamecube i'm just not doing it 
Yeah, I think if you were going to buy a classic console, and I can't believe that I'm addressing the GameCube as a classic console now, because that's just how the world works, but, like, if you're going to buy a console from that generation, I think the GameCube's probably a good one. Like, I appreciate the PlayStation 2. Loved having a PlayStation 2. My brother actually bought a PlayStation 2 recently, and we've been playing through some of the old games whenever we've been together, which has been, like, few and far between. But still, it's been really great. Uh, I would love to see a remake of Star Wars Battlefront 2. I'd love to see a remake of uh, the Baldur's Gate series on PlayStation 2. Uh, I think that would all be really great. But I, I think GameCube has a lot of merits of its own. I mean, like, the uh, the Super Smash Bros. on GameCube was really, really good. That's, like, the go-to competitive standard, as I understand it. Uh, like you said, the Mario Kart's really good. Uh, Mario Party had some good entries as well. Um, fucking Super Mario Sunshine, uh, Pikmin, the original Luigi's Mansion... However, if I could go back to the PlayStation 2 era and, like, games that I want a remake of, where the fuck is the Medal of Honor Rising Sun HD remake? You know, it's funny because that is a really great game and I wish there was a remake of it. Um, I think that after playing Battlefield 5, that might be the closest we're gonna get. Because that has a lot of stuff that takes place in the Pacific Theater of World War II. Mm -hmm. And there's not an awful lot of that going on anymore. So, they did that pretty well. I don't think that we're gonna see any remakes of Medal of Honor because it's almost like a dead series now. And I'm kind of upset about it, but also I think Battlefield kind of filled the void and keeps Call of Duty in check because... Fuck Call of Duty. Dude, fuck, I... After, what was it, like, Modern Warfare, Advanced Warfare, or whatever the fuck it's called, I, I was just done. I was like, why am I paying, like, $60 every year for the same game? It's the same reason I stopped buying Madden. Like, they barely yeah. change anything, and just fuck it, I'm done with it. I'm at the point of just calling the different years of football, like, football season 48. <laughs>